0: Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. Taking our Bibles and turning to 2 Samuel 14, and as we do so, I see that the ushers are ready to come by. If you didn't already pick up an outline sheet in the foyer, you can do that as they come by this evening, 2 Samuel chapter 14, 2 Samuel chapter 14. pick up the context in chapter 13 and verse 37 Absalom has killed his brother Amnon and in 2 Samuel 30, 13 and verse 37 we read that Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud king of Geshur and David mourned for his son every day so Absalom fled and went to Gesher and was there three years And the soul of King David longed to go forth unto Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon, seeing that he was dead. We continue reading now into chapter 14. Now, Joab, the son of Zariah, perceived that the king's heart was toward Absalom. Joab sent to Tekoa and fetched thence a wise woman and said unto her, I pray thee, feign thyself to be a mourner, and put on now mourning apparel, and anoint not thyself with oil. But be as a woman that had long time mourned for the dead. And come to the king and speak on this manner unto him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. And When the woman of Tekoa spake to the king, she fell on her face to the ground in the obeisance and said, Help, O king. The king said unto her, What aileth thee? And she answered, I am indeed a widow woman. My husband is dead. And thy handmaid had two sons, and they strove together in the field, and there was none to part them. The one smote the other and slew him. And behold, the whole family is risen against thine handmaid. And they said, Deliver him that smote his brother, that we may kill him. For the life of his brother whom he slew, we will destroy and the air also. So they shall quench my coal which is left, and shall not leave to my husband neither name nor remainder upon the earth. The king said unto the woman, Go to thine house, and I will give charge concerning thee. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, My lord, O king, The iniquity be on me, and on my father's house, and the king and his throne be guiltless. And the king said, Whosoever saith aught unto thee, bring him to me, and and he shall not touch thee any more. Then said she, I pray thee, let the king remember the Lord thy God, that thou wouldest not suffer the revengers of blood to destroy any more, lest they destroy my son. He said, As the Lord liveth, there shall not one hair of thy son fall to the earth. Then the woman said, Let thine handmaid, I pray thee, speak one more word unto my lord the king. And he said, Say on. And the woman said, Wherefore then hast thou thought such a thing against the people of God? For the king doth speak this thing as one which is faulty, in that the king doth not fetch home again his banished. For we must needs die, and are as water spilt on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Neither doth God respect any person, yet doth he devise means... That his banish be not expelled from him. Now therefore that I am come to speak to thee of this thing unto my Lord the king, it is because the people have made me afraid, and thy handmaid said, I will now speak unto the king. It may be that the king will perform the bequest of his handmaid. For the king will hear to deliver his handmaid out of the hand of the man that would destroy me and my son together out of the inheritance of God. Then thine handmaid said, The word of my Lord the king shall now be comfortable For as an angel of God, so is my Lord, the king, to discern good and bad. Therefore, the Lord thy God will be with thee. The king answered and said to the woman, "'Hide not from me, I pray thee, the thing that I shall ask thee.' And the woman said, "'Let my Lord the king now speak.' The king said, "'Is not this the hand of Joab with thee in all this?' And the woman answered and said, "'As thy soul liveth, my Lord the king,' None can turn to the right hand nor to the left from aught that my lord the king hath spoken. For thy servant Joab, he bade me, and he put all these words in the mouth of thine handmaid, to fetch out this form of speech hath thy servant Joab done this thing. My lord is wise, according to the wisdom of an angel to God, to know all things that are on earth. The king said unto Joab, Behold, now I have done this thing. Go, therefore, bring the young man Absalom again. And Joab fell to the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king. And Joab said, "'Today thy servant knoweth that I have found grace in thy sight, my lord, O king, in that the king hath fulfilled the request of his servant.' So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, "'Let him turn to his own house. Let him not see my face.' So Absalom returned to his own house and saw not the king's face." But in all Israel, there was none to be so much praised as Absalom for his beauty. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. When he pulled his head, for it was at every year's end that he pulled it, because the hair was heavy on him, therefore he pulled it. He weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels after the king's weight. And unto Absalom there were born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a woman of fair countenance. So Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem and saw not the king's face. Therefore Absalom sent for Joab to have sent him to the king, but he would not come to him. When he sent again the second time, he would not come. Therefore he said unto his servants, See, Joab's field is near mine, and he hath barley there. Th- there. Go and set it on fire. And Absalom's servant set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and came to Absalom into his house and said, Wherefore have thy servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent unto thee, saying, Come hither, that I may send thee to the king, to say, Wherefore am I come from Geshur? It had been good for me to have been there still. Now therefore let me see the king's face, and if there be any iniquity in me, let him kill me. So Joab said to the king and told him, When he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. A long text this evening, but it's a text that teaches us much. It's a text that teaches us what it means to offer false forgiveness, false forgiveness. I've prayed as we've looked at the life of David that God would allow from the pages of David's life principles that would help our families at Colonial Hills Baptist Church. I wrestled with the Lord on a theme for Sunday evenings, wrestling and thinking perhaps I should do a series on the family And the Lord gave me real peace about preaching a series on the life of David, and I think if you go back over the 26 messages in this series that you're going to find that week by week, every message has a key to developing a family of faith, and this evening's key to a family of faith is an interesting and applicable key and theme, not only to families of faith, but to all of us in every situation of life, but you're going to find we're going to apply it to that end, that we would have wisdom as parents. And do as God would have us to do, even when the doing is difficult. Let's ask the Lord to bless us as we look into His Word this evening. Father, I pray now that You would help us to learn from Your Word and to stand. And to minister with wisdom in our homes, with our children. Lord, I pray You'd give tender hearts and receptive minds this evening to learn from the truths and principles of Your Word. And we'll thank You for it in Christ's name. Amen. Aesop wrote his fables some 300 years after David had died. It's too bad because some of Aesop's fables contained truths that could have helped David in the predicament that he faces in 2 Samuel chapter 14. David is seen in this text making some decisions that would bring great pain to himself, to his family, and to his nation. By the end of the story of Absalom, some 20,000 of the nation of Israel will be dead. Asap told the story of a countryman whose son stepped on a serpent. And the serpent intuitively, instinctively, and immediately turned and struck the countryman's son. And the countryman's son, struck with such poison, soon died. Of course, the countryman, or the farmer being so upset about the serpent that had killed his son he went out in the field found that serpent and with an axe he chopped at that serpent almost missing but striking enough to cut off the tail of the serpent and now the serpent was angry missing its tail it went back out into the countryman or the farmer's field it found the farmer's cows and it proceeded to bite several of the co- farmer's cows causing their death and causing a financial disruption to the farmer The farmer, not knowing what to do, thought, you know, maybe this is being pressed too far. So the farmer went and found the serpent and said, let's forgive and let's forget. Perhaps you were right to punish my son for stepping on you. And you can certainly understand how I would take vengeance for the crime by cutting off your tail. But now we're both satisfied. Let's let bygones be bygones. Let's be friends. The serpent said to the farmer, no, no, take away your gifts. You can never forget the death of your son, and I can never forget the loss of my tail. That would have been an interesting story for David to muse upon as we discover him here in 2 Samuel chapter 14, at odds with Absalom and not knowing what to do. Rather than dealing with the sin that Absalom had committed, the sin of killing his own brother, that sin that divided this family, David, rather than dealing with the sin of Absalom, falls prey to the giant of false forgiveness. Absalom murdered his older brother Amnon. It was premeditated. He thought about it for two years. It was a vindictive murder. He thought it was a righteous murder. After all, Amnon had defiled Absalom's full sister and Amnon's half-sister. David mourned the loss of his eldest son. He was estranged from his most unusual, precocious, and beautiful son, Absalom. He was estranged from his murderous son, Absalom. As we open our Bibles this evening to 2 Samuel chapter 14, we discover that forgiveness can be tricky business anywhere, but especially in the home, especially in the family. 2 Samuel 14 provides a case study in false forgiveness. David's grudging reunion with Absalom is an example of how to ruin a reconciliation, David restores Absalom without teaching him to be responsible. Absalom returns to the favor of his father without the important step of repentance. And those who would avoid the fatal step of false forgiveness have much to consider as they open their Bibles to 2 Samuel 14. But before we consider 2 Samuel 14, we need to develop in our minds a biblical theology of forgiveness Some of you have developed this before, but we'll wrestle through it very quickly this evening in a survey form, for if we were to survey scripturally what it means to have scripturally directed forgiveness, we would answer together that the entire Bible seems to be a manual on the topic of forgiveness. God's Word helps us to understand both the process and the procedures by which we're to forgive others. When we look at the matter of the process of forgiveness, we discover way back in Genesis chapter 3 that the book of Genesis presents man's problem with sin. In Genesis 3 and verse 6, the woman saw the fruit that it was beautiful to look upon and it was able to make one wise. And she took it and she ate it. And Genesis 3, 6 says, she gave it to her husband to eat also. And sadly at that moment, sin came into humanity, and we were estranged from God. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8, the man and the woman hear the voice of God in the garden in the evening, and they hide from God, trembling, for they know that they are now naked, and they're estranged from the Lord. God says in Isaiah 59 and verse 2, Your sins and your iniquities, they have removed you far from me, so that I hide my face from you. Mankind is in a strange predicament with his God and Creator. God begins to answer the question of forgiveness way back in the book of Genesis by giving a promise of forgiveness. God could have easily said to the man and the woman in the garden, that's it, poof, you're gone. Huh, but he doesn't. God labors by his grace to provide a pathway of forgiveness. And God promises Prophetically, that true forgiveness will one day be known. When in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, he speaks, saying to the serpent and to the woman, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed, speaking to the serpent, and her seed. It shall bruise thy head. The seed of the woman will destroy the serpent, and thou shalt bruise its heel. God speaks in prophetic form of the coming of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who would bear our sins on the cross so that a true pathway of forgiveness could be enjoyed. And God speaks in figure in the book of Genesis. In chapter 3 and verse 21, the Word of God says, unto Adam and Eve, God did make coats of skins. There's a figure there. There's a picture there. That without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And that God by His grace will clothe us in the righteousness of Christ who would die for our sins. The symbolism is very clear in Genesis chapter 3 as God begins to develop this pathway toward true forgiveness. The process is discovered in the book of Genesis and the procedure for forgiveness is found throughout the pages of God's Word. The dimensions of forgiveness really stretch from Genesis to Revelation. Real and lasting forgiveness, we discover, requires both the work of God and the work of man. When estrangement comes, God provides a pathway for forgiveness and provides to us instruction by which real forgiveness can be enjoyed. What are you talking about, pastor? Well, God is intricately involved in the work of forgiveness. In Colossians chapter 1, we read in verse 20, having made peace to the blood of His cross, by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him I say, whether they be things on earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in the light. God through Jesus Christ provides a pathway for true forgiveness that allows us to be restored to fellowship with God. 1 John 1 and verse 9 so wonderfully says if we confess our sin, He's faithful, always ready to hear, and just, always ready to forgive because the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Now God's work in forgiveness is well known to us. But sometimes our work in forgiving one another, that becomes a bit more confusing. And so we consider quickly that the work of man in forgiveness is also found in God's Word. There's a spiritual dimension. There's a spiritual dimension when it comes to the matter of forgiveness. Mark 11 verse 25 says, And when you stand praying, if you have ought against your brother, forgive. Your brother's not there when you stand praying. But when you stand praying, if you realize in your heart that I've got a situation with somebody else, in this spiritual dimension, you're to give that account to God. You do that because Romans 12 and verse 19 says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. If you hold on to a fragment of vengeance, your heart will become bitter and your life will be soiled. And so in the spiritual dimension, we are always to give to God the possibility of vengeance. We're to release that account to God. But then there's the practical side, the spiritual side always releasing, the practical side. So what do I do when I bump into that guy on the street or in the church foyer? Well, the Lord Jesus spoke to this in Luke 17 when he said in verse 1, It's impossible, but that offenses will come. But woe unto you through whom they come. It were better for you that a millstone would be put upon your neck and that you would be cast into the depths of the sea than that you would offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves, the Lord said. If your brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. You have an obligation to confront someone who has truly offended you. Rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day and seven times in a day, turn to you and says, and says, and says, I repent then you will forgive him. Both the offender, you see, and the offended have a responsibility. The offended is to go and confront and the one who did the offending is to repent and acknowledge the wrongdoing. And so we have a practical side and a spiritual side to the matter of forgiveness. Understanding this helps us to understand why it's so wrong for the Christian community to stand outside of a court when a criminal has in no wise accepted responsibility for the crime that he perpetrated, for that Christian to confuse the community by holding up a sign that says, I forgive you. It's not up to you to forgive that criminal. It's up to the judge to judge that criminal. Now it's up to you to release the account to God and not seek vengeance against the criminal. But it's not up to you to declare forgiveness in that moment. And there are many Christians who are very confused about the matter of biblical forgiveness. Real forgiveness requires real repentance. It requires the acknowledgement of responsibility. Now, there's a word that's strange in our culture. But real repentance and real responsibility are necessary for real forgiveness to be known. Spiritual forgiveness, that's unconditional. That's all the time. Always releasing the account, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord, acknowledging that God has perfect, infinite wisdom in every situation, and I don't. I am not the judge, I am not the jury, and I am not the executioner. But I can confront those who have offended me, and I can release the account to God and pray that God will make me a minister of righteousness. You which are spiritual, restoring such a one. Now we've done a quick survey of what biblical forgiveness is all about. And we've done it very intentionally because when you come to 2 Samuel chapter 14, you find the record of something that is not biblical forgiveness. David's decision does not align with God's directions. In fact, 2 Samuel chapter 14 is a story of satanically devised forgiveness. That's a strong word, Pastor Phelps. It's a purposefully strong word to describe exactly what's happening in 2 Samuel 14. Here's the story of false forgiveness. David fails. He fails to make Absalom responsible for his sin. And Absalom demonstrates no repentance with regard to the premeditated murder of his brother Amnon. And the end of this story is entirely sad. For without real repentance, without real responsibility on the part of the criminal, there's only one result that you can expect. Greater, further, deeper, and more hurtful rebellion. And that's exactly what you discover in this passage. The end of this sad story is Absalom's rebellion against the reign of his father, David. So we'll review the main characters of this story just so we have the light of God's word in our heart. You'll see this evening Joab's plot. Joab's plot. Verse 2, Joab sent to Tekoa and fetched thence a wise woman. (laughs) The word wise there means subtle. She wasn't biblically wise, but she was conniving and my, how she could tell a tale. And verse 7, and when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and did obeisance and said, help, O king. The king said to her, what aileth thee? She answered, I am indeed a widow woman. My husband's dead. My handmaid had two sons and they strove together in the field. There was none to part them. One smote the other and slew him. Behold, the whole family was risen up against thine handmaid. And they said, deliver him that smote his brother, that we may kill him for the life of his brother whom he slew. We will destroy the air also, and so they'll quench my coal. They'll leave me without an heir. My, what a dreadful story. What will David do? Verse 11, she said, I pray thee, let the king remember the Lord thy God, that thou wouldst not suffer the revenger of blood to destroy any more, unless they destroy my son. He said, as the Lord liveth, there shall not one hair of thy son fall to the earth. Then the woman said, let thine handmaid, I pray thee, speak one more word unto my lord the king. And he said, say on. And the woman said, wherefore then hast thou thought such a thing against the people of God? For the king doth speak this thing as one which is faulty, in that the king doth not fetch home again his own banished. Huh, You've got a son that's out there on the run. David, what about that son? Verse 18, and the king answered and said to the woman, Hide not from me, I pray, thee, the thing that I shall ask thee, the woman said, let, the lord my, let my lord the king now speak. And the king said, Is not this the hand of Joab with thee in all this? And the woman answered and said, As thy soul liveth, my lord the king, none can turn to the right hand or to the left, from aught that my lord the king hath spoken. For thy servant Joab, he bade me, he put all these words in my mouth, the mouth of the handmaid, whether she had two sons or not, we don't know. All we know is Joab set this one up, and it worked. David finds himself trapped in his own council. You see, Joab had seen that David was torn up over Amnon when his son Amnon was murdered. But Joab had also seen that David seemed to be getting over the death of Amnon, and David longed to see Absalom again. Amnon was the eldest. That means he was heir apparent to the throne of Israel. Absalom was the fairest. Joab was a captain of the host. He was the nephew of David. Joab was a cunning, conniving, and sometimes murderous man. We'll discover Joab's end later on in the book of 2 Samuel. Joab was thinking politically. The heir apparent, Amnon, is gone. Absalom's been living three years up there in Syria, in Geshur. What should I do? David's not getting any younger. Boy, it seems to me that the next person in line for the throne is probably Absalom. And now David's mourning because he hasn't seen Absalom these three years. I know what I'll do. I'll concoct a story that will lead his heart to move, much like the story that Nathan presented to him when Nathan talked about a little lamb that had been stolen. But Joab's methodology was pernicious. The end that he desired was an end that had nothing to do with the will of God with regard to a murderer. Joab prepared the woman of Tekoa to trick David into justifying false forgiveness. Offering a forgiveness that Absalom was not requesting. There was no repentance in Absalom to offer This forgiveness to Absalom to bring him back into the throne room, back into fellowship, back to the family. There was nothing in Absalom that would cause David to think that Absalom had changed. But Joab tricked David into justifying a false forgiveness rather than keeping God's standard of justice. Be careful when your tenderness turns you away from what you know to be God's standard of justice. You're no longer standing in the center of God's will. You see, real restoration really requires responsibility and is really demonstrated through repentance. Joab pushed David to put sympathy before Scripture. Joab pushed David by coaching the woman of Tekoa in order to provide a pathway so that David could justify his wrongdoing and excuse his partiality toward his son. A premeditated murder in Israel? Why, the law had already spoken with regard to that, but this was the king's son in line for the throne. Isn't he somebody special? Yes, but God's justice still requires him to pay the penalty for his sin. It's interesting when you compare Nathan's confrontation of David with the woman of Tekoa's confrontation of David. They're not on the same page. Nathan, who's a prophet, confronts David with the truth about his sin. And Nathan points out the need for a penalty for that sin. And David repents and requests God's mercy. The woman of Tekoa confronts David with a lie. She leads him to avoid exacting any penalty. She speaks nothing of sin. She speaks nothing of real consequence. And yet David falls for her ploy. And we learn, listen, we learn a very valuable, very difficult principle in this passage. And here's the principle. Satan is a master teaching us how to justify our wrongdoing. And he'll bring counselors along that will cause you as a dad or a mom, employee, employer, a Christian, to somehow justify dipping God's standard in order to satisfy your sympathetic heart. It doesn't just happen here. It happens in our lives over and over. How easy it is for us to put love against the law and choose love and justify in our minds something that God would condemn. Isn't it loving to give an expectant mother another chance on life by allowing her to no longer be with child and giving her the opportunity for an education and the betterment of her life? I mean, how could you advocate against that? We justify by such reasoning the evil of abortion. Recently, I had a conversation with someone who said something that we hear often in our generation. Don't you think there's a genetic predisposition, rather, toward homosexuality? I mean, how is it that some people just seem to be wired in that way? They grow up in the same home. Now, wait a minute. When reasoning comes that way, we need to go to the book of James chapter 1, and in James chapter 1, we're going to see, no, 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 no. The Bible says in the book of James chapter 1 and verse 13, let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God. For God is not tempted of any man, neither tempteth he any man. If you fall prey to the idea of a genetic presupposition, or predisposition rather, who are you ultimately blaming? Isn't it he who creates us in the womb of our mother? And suddenly we find ourselves justifying all kinds of things. That's what's happening in David's life. Proverbs 24 says in verse 8, he that deviseth to do evil should be called a mischievous person. That's Joab. A mischievous, conniving person. Can I ask you something? Is there someone in your life whose counsel typically seems to be contrary to the clear teachings of God's Word? Joabs tend to give counsel that brings great tragedy. 1 Corinthians 15, evil communication will corrupt good manners. You know, it was David who wrote, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, law does he meditate. Day. David should have listened to his own counsel. But David went along with the woman of Tekoa, and he went along with the plot of Joab because of his predicament. Let's look at that quickly. David's predicament. What was the predicament of David? It's a common predicament. All of us who are parents have felt it. Absalom fled, verse 37, and went to Talmai, the son of Ammiahud, king of Geshur. David mourned for his son every day, and Absalom fled and went to Geshur. was there three years. The soul of King David longed to go forth unto Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon, seeing he was dead. And now Joab, the son of Zariah, perceived that the king's heart was toward Absalom. Amnon's lust, Amnon's defiling of his sister Tamar, Absalom's plot, Absalom's murder of his brother Amnon, it all reminded David of his own sin. His lust toward Bathsheba, his plot to have her, his plot with regard to Uriah, and the murder of Bathsheba's husband. Why it was all being mirrored in his own family. So there was a sympathetic heart. How can I, who have done such evil, how can I then judge others? And that's a confusion to many when we read God's Word, except that we discover that David, when he's confronted, cries out in repentance And he says, against you and you only I have sinned and done this wickedness in your eyes. And God, God removes the sentence from David, the sentence of his death. But he does sentence him to consequence. In the situation in 2 Samuel 14, the law required David to execute his son Absalom. It's very clear. In Genesis 9 and verse 6, the word of God says, "...whoso sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed." Exodus 21 and verse 12 very clearly says, He that smiteth a man so that he die, he will surely be put to death. Why didn't it happen? Simple. David loved Absalom. And David's love for his son kept him from doing his duty. David chose compromise over conviction. He chose compromise over conviction. He chose personality over principle. He allowed his relationship of love for Absalom to keep him from keeping the rules of God. And every one of us who's honest will find ourselves in this predicament crying out. Jesus knew that. That's why he said in Luke 14, verse 26, if any man come to me and hate not his father or his mother or his wife or his children. Now he's speaking comparatively. If your affection, if your loyalty isn't first to God, then he says, you can't be my disciple. David tolerated Absalom's escape to Geshur. Geshur was north. It was in Syria. David's wife, Makkah, had been from Gesher. In fact, her father had been the king of Geshur. So where's Absalom going? He's going back to the homeland of his mother. He's going to be around his family members and still living the life of a prince. He's living there for three years in this City of his maternal grandfather. Now, David ruled the city of Geshur. He'd conquered it long ago. But Absalom was welcomed in that city. This was the home of his mother. His lifestyle hadn't really changed while his location had changed. David let Absalom come back then, back to Jerusalem. Why did David let him come back to Jerusalem? Well, his heart had been tricked. But look what he does in verse 24 of chapter 14. Joab arose in verse 23 and went to Gesher and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him turn to his own house, let him not see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house and saw not the king's face. Why? Because David had a community that expected that he would do the right thing when it came to disciplining his own family. And David was living this lie. See? He's back in Jerusalem, but he's not back in the palace. See, I've let him come and go in Jerusalem now again, but he's not at my table. We're really not reconciled. David was saving face in the community, but had not considered that he was facing off with God. As I look in this passage, I see David's predicament, and I understand it. The Lord has blessed us with six children Along the way, we understand that every one of the children that God graciously gives to us will bring a special responsibility to us as parents to teach them responsibility as children. Sometimes it's hard for us as parents, isn't it, to accept the penalties that they've earned. Sometimes we want to step in. We fail to understand that when we step in, we fail to see them develop the character that's necessary for them to live for Christ. This is a very common problem that happens within Christian communities just like this one. But not just this one, it happens everywhere. When a child disobeys and a parent wrestles with how to save face within the community and seeks to alter the pathway to make it a little bit easier, don't forget, you may be altering the pathway to make it easier and impacting the future character of the child that God has graciously given to you. And that's the end of the story in this passage. Because this passage reveals to us Absalom's pride. Absalom's pride. Absalom was a vain, exceedingly proud man. Absalom was all about the externals and nothing about the internals. On the outside, exceedingly attractive. On the inside, exceedingly empty. He chose his sin and he really tried to alter the consequences well. You see, Absalom delighted in the flattery of others. We discover in verse 25, all Israel, in all of Israel, there was none so much praised as Absalom for his beauty. Someone said Absom was tall, dark, and hairy. Five pounds of hair he grows every year. He pulled his head, verse 26, on an annual basis, and it comes out being five pounds of hair. I love what Matthew Henry said about this passage. The old Puritan said, Pride, it feels no cold, so it feels no heat. And that which feeds and gratifies it is not complained of, though very uneasy. So it is, he says, with the latest styles in our day. If it's an in-style or attracts favorable attention, it doesn't bother us whether it's hot, cold, heavy, or scratches. Most people will suffer more to feed their vanity than they will suffer to protect their virtue. But it's virtue that matters, certainly not vanity." Absalom not only needed to pull his hair more often, but he also needed to do some frequent pulling of his pride. If he'd been diligent about pulling his pride, he would have pulled his hair more often, says Matthew Henry. I laughed the other day as I saw a young person yesterday out in shorts and 36 degrees, windy and cold, and I thought, I'm glad I'm not so proud. <laughs> Absalom delighted in the flattery of others. Absalom demanded recognition of others he dwelt two whole years in Jerusalem and saw not the king's face verse 28 so what did he do he sent for Joab Joab would help him out right to have Joab talk to the king and Joab wouldn't come so he sent a second time and Joab wouldn't come so what's he do he sets Joab's fields on fire and now Joab comes Absalom wanted recognition. It didn't matter whose property he destroyed. It didn't matter whose life he got in the way of. Absalom was all about Absalom. Absalom disregarded the rights of others. Absalom answered Joab in verse 32, Behold, I am come unto thee, saying, Come hither, that I may send thee to the king, to say, Wherefore am I come to Gesher? It had been good for thee to have been there still or for me to have been there still. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face. There's no apology for setting Joab's fields on fire. Absalom disregarded the rights of others, and he denied his sin to others. Verse 32, if there be any iniquity in me, let him kill me. Wow. Are you kidding? Absalom, you plotted two years to have your brother murdered. And now you're standing before Joab saying, what have I done? That's where pride goes. Pride denies one's own sin. No conscience, no confession, no contrition. But when he stands before the king, he's perfected the art of false humility. He comes before the king in verse 33, and he falls to the ground. Right. He's bowing on the outside, but on the inside, he's the same old Absalom. Absalom even declares his loyalty to the king as the king kisses Absalom and sees his son bowing so favorably. But it's a false loyalty. Absalom returned, but he didn't repent. Absalom was restored, but he had no responsibility. Here, I would say, is a common problem that so many parents fall prey to Again, reading from A.W. Pink, Pink makes this observation. Take it on its lowest grounds. Do not those parents defeat their own ends who from a miscalled love fail to deal sternly with the disobedience and defiance of their little ones who when their children are grown up wink at their sins. How many a shiftless youth whose every whim is gratified by his doting mother develops into a worthless wastrel. How many a flighty daughter is allowed her own way under the pretext of letting her have a good time only to end up becoming a woman of ill virtue? Even the natural man is responsible to bring his affections under the control of his judgment and not let his heart run away from his head. But the child of God is to be regulated by a far higher, far holier principle And it's to subordinate the yearnings of nature to the glory of God by receiving and keeping His commandments. You see, forgiveness, forgiveness without justice is fiction. When responsibility is avoided, where repentance is shunned, the end is going to be, it's always going to be rebellion. There are those parents who are under the heading of excuse-making parents. It can start quite innocently. Usually it's not noticeable. Well, they're teething, or they didn't get enough sleep, or grandma and grandpa were visiting last night, or they ate too much sugar, or somebody pulled the chair out. That's their favorite seat. The dog's been feeling ill, so you can understand why they're not doing well in class today. People become proficient at offering all kinds of excuses until their children take over. They'll figure it out. If you can't come up with an excuse for for them, they'll, they'll, they'll offer you one. And soon the child is offering the excuse to the parent. But what the parent doesn't understand, and listen, is when that happens, the child loses respect for the parent. The child understands, my dad, my mom will lie for me. My dad, my mom will make an excuse for me no matter what. My dad, my mom will always side with me and not with the authority But doesn't the word of God say, whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son that he receives? Doesn't he say, if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are you bastards and not sons? Pastor, that's a tough message. 2 Corinthians 4 says, the work of God in our lives goes like this. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more compelling weight of glory, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Dear dad, dear mom, where there's no real forgiveness, there can be no lasting peace. And so David deals tenderly with Absalom. And Absalom turns around and, as we see, revolts and bites his own father. By the end of the story, 20,000 people of Israel are going to be dead. Aesop was more right than David. The snake and the farmer could not reconcile without repentance. Rules without relationships, they lead to rebellion. And relationships without rules, it leads to confusion. May God help this message in your life tonight, dear parent or employer or fellow citizen, to develop in you a balance that understands we are so dependent upon God. Thank God He has given to us A rule of justice and an understanding of wisdom. And may God give to us gracious hearts to be open to what He teaches us. Let's stand together, please, as we pray. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.